0: Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, your host for this the Provider Podcast. I'm excited to bring you today's episode. We are going to discuss guideline directed medical therapy, the gaps between the evidence and the practicalities of implementation. This came up as a topic uh, within our podcast team, and we thought we could have a meaningful discussion with people across the country about some of these gaps in what we know works, and then actually getting the therapies to our patients. So our guests today include Dr. Greg Fonero, Chief of Cardiology, University of California, Los Angeles, Director of the Amundsen UCLA Cardiomyopathy Center, Dr. Ted Bure, Clinical Pharmacist of Advanced Heart Failure at University of Wisconsin, and Dr. Jonathan Davis, Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of the Heart Failure Program at Zuckerberg General Hospital. Thank you all for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you for having us. To get us started, a little bit of background for everyone listening. You know, we have a long list of medical therapies that are beneficial from a life-prolonging and quality-of-life perspective, particularly for our patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, beta blockade, mineralocorticoid antagonists, sacubitril valsartan, SGLT2 inhibitors, and even more therapies now. The number of therapeutics has become challenging to really implement for the provider who's taking care of these patients every day. So I'd like to start with uh, Greg, you know, you've done a lot of the pivotal work in this area about some of these gaps between what the science tells us and what's happening in day-to-day practice. From your perspective, what do you believe are some of the primary barriers to implementing the therapies that we know are so effective?
1: It really is so striking to have such compelling evidence from our randomized clinical trials that these therapies provide marked benefit. They're truly additive to each other within the trials. These therapies have generally been well tolerated and have received class one recommendations in the guidelines. But yet, when we look at setting after setting, there are these large gaps that exist in the use of the therapy, as well as dosing, marked variation among different clinicians, different hospitals, different outpatient settings, as well as disparities in use. And while there have been a number of studies that have highlighted that, you know, as we look over the last decade, we still see these persistent challenges that exist. One of the things that's striking in work that we've done is just how strong clinical inertia is, that it seems like in the outpatient setting, there'll be visit after visit, where the medication is being thought about, but deferred to the next visit, and then the next visit, and you see very little change actually occurring. We see the same thing in patients being discharged from the hospital, where there's a belief of, we'll defer this therapy to an outpatient basis and then that never occurs. So clinical inertia is such a a strong component. I think there are elements where there's perceptions and concerns about tolerability, and I think we'll talk about that in detail. Tolerability from a renal function standpoint, tolerability from a systolic blood pressure standpoint, and potential side effects being attributed to the medication, when in fact it may be the underlying condition. I think in general, there's underappreciation of the urgency in the use of these therapies, how high risk, even stable, outpatients with heart failure are, and underappreciation of how rapidly these therapies work. And so, you know, all of those um, somewhat gaps in knowledge, gaps in systems, gaps in implementation. All converge to then lead the majority of our patients not on optimal therapy and thus having events that could have been prevented had there been better implementation.
0: Great points to start us off, Jonathan. What do you? What are your thoughts on this issue? No, I, I absolutely agree, and just
2: I I, I think a lot of it comes down to all of those points that Greg just nicely articulated, and, and how do we how do we overcome that inertia? And I, I talk about this a lot when folks are in the hospital and you know, they're a captive audience, you're checking their vital signs six times a day in their labs, twice a day, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the safest time to start everything. And this, the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll comment on is just, even if you can start just a little bit, like a whiff of carbidol or a whiff of Lisinopril or a whiff of something, providers are more likely to change the dose from 12 and a half of succinate to 25 than to start something brand new. And so I really make that that point that even if it's a little bit, you got to start you know, start somewhere, and using um, and this is something that Greg's talked about a lot. You know, every touch point is an opportunity. So before I see any patient, I look at their medication list, and if they're not a goal, I walk into the room like the goal is this, and I have to talk myself out of it um, based on you know, a heart rate or a creatinine or a potassium or something like that, but. Um I think a lot of it's going to come down to how do we disseminate the information, kind of change the mindset and empower everyone to start something or change something, not just the heart failure cardiologist
3: yeah, and i, I would I would echo uh both uh, Greg and Jonathan as well. I think the the inpatient setting is a unique opportunity to be able to not only initiate titrate kind of it's almost a playground almost for a lot of these medications, I think uh, in a way since we're monitoring these patients much more closely than we can on the outpatient side. The other the other aspect to that too, and I think a lot of us are spoiled that we come from, you know, large academic medical centers with lots of resources, large uh, amounts of heart failure nurses and people that can really help assist us in getting GDMT either started or titrated in the outpatient setting. Whereas a lot of our colleagues at other institutions may not have those resources. So I think that any opportunity, especially on the inpatient side, to get things started, like, like you were kind of highlighting too, Kevin, I think just seeing it there, uh, it makes it so much easier to titrate it on the outpatient uh, setting. And then you think about the times patients miss clinic visits. They push clinic visits back. It can take months to years to just get things started and, and, and hopefully titrate it as well. So, um, yeah.
0: So what, what are everyone's thoughts? So I agree. Cl- clinical inertia is a giant component here. The other side of the coin from the patient side this issue of either tolerance of the medical therapies and then cost and access to these therapies i was in clinic this morning i had two back-to-back patients that i wanted to start a similar agent and one was going to be ten dollars a month the other same agent was going to be seven hundred dollars a month and most of the conversation was just about the cost of the drug we didn't even spend much time talking about anything else I'm sure everyone's had somewhat similar experiences, particularly on the outpatient side. Uh, so Greg, maybe we can start with you, your thoughts uh, on these issues of intolerance and how do we define intolerance? And then also this issue of just cost and access.
1: Yeah, I also would raise this in terms of perception, because think about it from the patient's standpoint, it's, you know three, six months after they've been diagnosed, and now you're saying, oh, here's this additional medication that you now need and is so essential for you. And that perception is, well, if it was so essential, why wasn't it started earlier when I was in the hospital or at the time of diagnosis? And sending that signal, oh, you must be getting worse because you need this essential medication now, and if it's not that, it would have been started earlier. So you're already a little bit behind the eight ball in that perception. Now, certainly cost access out-of-pocket expense is really important. And it was mentioned, you know, being part of a multidisciplinary team where you may have access to specialty pharmacies. There'll be many patients where it appears as if cost is going to be an issue, but you work through and pick the right medication for them or find an access program. And it's very manageable in that regard. So there are things that need to be done for a very busy clinician. It can be challenging, but if you're working as a team or setting up that team, even in a community outpatient setting of working with specialty pharmacies or advanced practice nurses can allow a large portion of these patients to be treated. Ultimately, there are going to be some patients where there are barriers to access and the out-of-pocket expense too high, but that'll be an informed decision With the clinician in the hospital setting, also much of that can be uh, addressed. They're medical social workers. They're the pharmd's there. So you know, a lot reinforces that kind of upfront treatment and the magnitude of benefit that these patients reap. But delaying it to outpatient and many months down the road before adding additional meds just sets that up for a perception that it really wasn't essential. It's optional and why do I need to add this additional medication? It just makes me think I'm getting worse.
0: It's a good point about perception. Uh, I think that plays a key role in how we do a lot of, a lot of what we do when we provide care. Um, Jonathan, your, your thoughts on this issue, particularly the cost access issue. I'm sure you, you take care of a lot of patients in San Francisco that maybe can't afford some of these things.
2: It's actually really interesting. So San Francisco General Hospital and the San Francisco Health Network, we only take care of patients with public health insurance, Medicare, Medi-Cal, there's a healthy San Francisco. And interestingly enough, the cost is almost not the issue very commonly. It's the other issues of the polypharmacy, the access side effects, um, kind of pill burden overall. But I think a lot of it also comes down to a lot of the points that Greg commented about looking for assistance with cost. But also setting the expectation early with the patient and with the other people on their healthcare team. I work a lot with the primary care uh, clinics around the city. And I think setting everyone's expectation that it's a lot of medications, yes, but they really work, you know, kind of highlight some of the things that Greg talked about. And you're going to be on them for a long time. And it's not an antibiotic you're going to take for a little bit, it's going to fix a problem and you can stop it. Um, But I think a lot of that goes into, uh, and Ted was talking about this also, the the, the expectations, the education that happened at the time of diagnosis and saying like, this is, we're on a journey together. We're going to do this together. Uh, It's a lot of meds, but they work and we're going to get you on them. Um, And if you kind of get everyone on the same page that this is going to be part of the plan and the process, I think it makes the dose changes and the adding the medicines um, that much easier because they have a little bit more empowerment, a little more of the understanding of why.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I would... uh... Just to kind of echo again off of, uh, of Greg and Jonathan, I think there's a, a couple different things to think about when it comes to this topic from just an access issue, being a pharmacist, I guess I can talk a little bit about that. I think, again, it, you have to have a kind of a standardized, and I think every institution probably does, but an, an approach to make sure at least providers and clinicians have access to easily being able to identify costs for medications for patients as well. I think payer mix obviously is, is different depending on your location, if you're more urban versus remote in terms of what your what your payer mix is going to look like and, and what kind of a patient population you're working with. But knowing how to navigate, whether it's being able to send test claims, whatever it might be, working with if there's a pharmacist team, pharmacist, pharmacist and client, whatever it might be. Knowing how to get that information in real time so it's not just a discussion you can have in clinic and then we'll follow up on it and I'll send you a in basket message and you know just all this gets lost in translation, yeah. So I think, um, making sure that we have quick and easy access to that information. One of the nice things that we have here at UW is we actually have a whole set of pharmacy technicians, about 30 or 40 of them, that work throughout our entire health system that are running all of our prior authorizations, all of our test, making sure that we have access for medications uh, for patients on the inpatient side. So anytime we start anything on the inpatient side, the first thing that a pharmacist is thinking about is, can someone pay for that? Can they? Have, can we make sure they have access to this at discharge? Because there's no point in starting something up here if we can't get them on that and have them on that as they, when they discharge into the outpatient setting. But then we also have them there for our clinicians in the ambulatory setting as well so that they can they can make sure and have the confidence in clinic when they you know prescribe something that they know the patient's going to have access to it and if there's anything involved from a specialty pharmacy standpoint or from a prior authorization standpoint it really removes the clinician from having to be involved in that unless there's just a signature needed or something so it it frees up our time, your time to be able to focus on kind of the higher level aspects of care so you're not bogged down with a lot of that. So if, again, it's a resource thing too. So not everyone can 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 afford to have that. And a lot of us are lucky to have it. But I think more than anything, it gets to just having processes in place at least where we can identify the cost of medications and have systems and, and providers are aware of what these systems are. Financial assistance programs, having social workers involved as well, I think is key too. So it's you know, I know we're going to get to this a little bit later, but just the the team aspect of everything here, it's, I think that's what always has attracted me to taking care of of heart failure patients is the heart failure team is really kind of the essence of the treatment of this patient population.
0: It is, it completely is. And I, you know, it it ties in all of the, a lot of these other related issues, including social determinants of health and which patients are really going to be able to take these medications or receive these medications we have something similar at the University of Utah. We have a wonderful pharmacy team and technicians Mm -hmm. that it's very easy for me to say, I'd like to start this drug. And I know there's a lot of people turning a lot of wheels for me to find out two days later, okay, it's going to cost this much to start this for this much time. It makes a huge difference when you're able to have that conversation with the patient in the clinic. This is what it's actually going to cost. And so let's have a conversation about that too, versus that future tense discussion of, we'd love to start this. I don't know how much it's going to cost. It could be anywhere. We'll figure it out in the future. I think you can you can lose a little bit of patient um, trust over time if you don't have that information, unfortunately. Um, one area that came up was guidelines. Uh, and you know Greg's been obviously very involved with a lot of the guidelines. And I think we're due for new guidelines soon. Um, my question is, uh, we can start with Greg. How much, when we talk about clinical inertia, do we, once the new guidelines come out that are sort of updated to contemporary science, how much of that do you believe is a catalyst to start changing the way people across the country start implementing the, the medical therapies?
1: Yeah, so wouldn't it be terrific if a guideline gets published, has a compelling class one recommendation, benefits greatly outweigh the risks, and all eligible patients should be treated, and that translates into clinical practice across the country, across the world. Unfortunately, um, in prior studies, we've actually seen that uh, the guidelines are not as much of a catalyst as we would like and sometimes make little difference. They are absolutely necessary, but not sufficient on their own. So certainly without the evidence and guidelines supporting uh, the use of therapies, that that is an irrational way to, to guide uptake. But once having those guidelines and that evidence, it's not sufficient. So that's where the systems and teams really come into place We've seen with you know MRA therapy now over two decades since evidence and guidelines, we still have large gaps, particularly in the United States compared to other regions of the world. We've seen the uptake with regards to sacubitril valsartan, although somewhat improving recently in the first year after the guidelines came out, that the use was approximately two percent in eligible patients. So you know, a really surprising gap. So all of this just highlights that the guidelines are really important to convey the synthesis of that evidence, provide recommendations, but we really need dedicated clinicians, multidisciplinary teams, clinical decision supports, access um, beyond the guidelines.
0: I agree. Jonathan, any any other thoughts? How much do the guidelines change what you're doing day to day or Or do you start changing practice once these trials are published? I think it's, at least for
2: me, it's different since it's all I do all day, every day is is heart failure and trying to keep up with all the heart failure guidelines and publications and whatnot. It's like, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I think part of our job is to then go around and educate and and disseminate that information. You know, the guidelines, the way I actually use the guidelines most is actually with other providers, with insurance companies and with hospital pharmacy um, to help. You know, leverage the change and try to make a system-wide impact, um, which is a lot of what we do here in San Francisco is on a systems level kind of dissemination of care with the, within the, the health network. Um, and so I can go to the pharmacy and say, or the insurance company, say, look, Arnie is now class one on top. Don't do the ACE first. Don't do Arnie first. So don't do ARB first. So please stop sending me this rejection saying, you know, that you know, they're supposed to, they haven't failed this other medication first. That. That's old. So I, I can use that in the policy. I can use that for the workflow. I can use those guidelines to try to leverage on a systems level, making these, kind of trying to facilitate getting rid of some of these barriers.
3: Yeah, I would, I would agree too. I, the guidelines on a, on, on a day-to-day basis, I don't think they really impact us too much because we're usually aware of the primary literature when it's coming out and making changes kind of in real time and, and dealing with it. But I agree. I think a lot of it comes down to education because as we know most of our heart failure patients are are being managed by internists or being managed in family medicine clinics not by heart failure specialists or even cardiologists necessarily. So I think um, you know the dissemination of information needs to get we need to find ways to get it to those people more so than us. I think we're we're akin to all of this just just by by what we do on a daily basis, but it's the patients that you get transferred into you from some of these, uh, you know, uh, other facilities and you're just shaking your head, wondering all these years, like what was going on, the the opportunities that were missed with medication, uh, titration, or just initiation. Um, and you know, I don't blame any other provider. I think it's, it's hard when you have, you know, heart failure patients with multiple comorbidities being managed in an internal medicine clinic or in a family practice clinic where, you know, you're. <laughs> You're stressed to see, you know, multiple, multiple patients on a daily basis and you can only fit so much into a visit too. So, and they're limited resources. So I think, yeah, we need to really focus on how do we equip our our colleagues to take care of these patients and stay up to date on literature as it comes out. Um, And I, I don't have a reference. I'm sure Greg probably could point it out, but there's some statistic with a lot of these new heart failure meds where, I mean, it takes, you know, 10, 15 years for these drugs to really kick in into practice, mainstream practice. Before you know you, you see them all over the place, even you know Arnie there's still uh, some cardiologists that I'll work with from time to time, not heart failure cardiologists that still really don't understand what in what Arnie is. Um, so it's just you know it's part of the battle, but I think it's a it's a learning opportunity for everyone every day and it's an ability for us to teach too rather than just get frustrated.
0: it's a, It's a good point at particularly that issue you made about this whole this is this is really a team effort right this there's there's only so many heart failure cardiologists walking around doing this there's only so many cardiologists walking around doing this and you know that having this team-based care whether it's pharmacists whether it's cardiologists whether it's non-cardiologists our clinic here at the University of Utah is really a team clinic we have apcs fellows fac- attending physicians pharmacists everyone working together and I, I feel like once you have that, Type of system and everyone's sort of speaking the same language and walking in the same direction, you can slowly make steps towards actually implementing some of these medical therapies. Um, Ted, what what has been the experience there at University of Wisconsin, at least with the team
3: based care, whether it's in the clinic or in the hospital setting? Yeah, so we actually um, we don't have a really robust ambulatory presence yet. We're we're kind of expanding there right now, actually, uh, as a speak, but. What we had done from an inpatient side is we had leveraged some of our inpatient resources, and we had started a telehealth clinic um, for GDMT up titration for for our heart fa- for specific heart failure patients. Um, so we had outlined criteria, which I'm always I'm happy to share with anyone. It's actually publicly available on our website. But essentially, we were managing the care of of a lot of hefref patients that weren't being managed by our advanced heart failure team. That and we being a kind of a tertiary or quaternary care center, uh, as you guys are too, you get a lot of referrals and patients that come to you. And then oftentimes they kind of go back out to their PCPs or wherever that are part of different health systems. So there's not a lot of oftentimes a lot of follow-up. So we really focused on folks that stuck within the UW health system, but um, we basically had pharmacists helping in addition to our heart failure nurses and nurses in our cardiology clinics taking a chunk of patients and helping to up titrate their, their heart failure, GDMT, essentially. Um, and it it had been pretty successful. A lot of it got put on pause with COVID, just resources being shifted around. Um, but we're looking to hopefully get that started back. Um, something else I, I had written a paper not too long ago with, um, some international colleagues as well. And I I don't want to forget about the work that's being done around the globe too, which is equally as amazing. And I think the, the the healthcare systems in Europe, um, Canada, and so forth are much more progressive in terms of how they implement other team members too, and the and some of the the capability that they give to pharmacists and other and nurses and so forth to really get involved. Where I think in the states, it's tough because every state has different rules and regulations in terms of how you can involve a pharmacist or a nurse in terms of starting initiating therapy, ordering labs and and all of that. But um, it's, it's a really, it's a global effort too. And I was amazed to learn what they're doing in Scotland, what they're doing in Canada, even Africa, like pharmacists, nurses, everyone, Um, I think, you know, we oftentimes think, you know, the United States, we do it best, but it's, there's a lot of great practice models out there from different countries too, in terms of how they, they involve um, other healthcare team members. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I think, yeah, being able to leverage, if again, resource-wise you have the ability, pharmacists, nurses, APPs as well in these GDMT clinics, um, which we've kind of set up here, just having a, it's a follow-up clinic following a, after, after your initial heart failure admission. Um, but, um, being able to have, you know, touch points with patients very soon and frequent, and then being able to have protocols in place for nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, to be able to titrate medications and do some of the, uh, you know, more basic aspects of GDMT again, to kind of shift away some of the, I don't want to say grunt work, but a lot of the, the lifting that would kind of bog physicians down and APPs down from seeing patients diagnosing and kind of focusing on some of the higher level aspects of care too, while pharmacists and nurses can take care of some of the more uh, mundane things on the day-to-day aspect um, that we're qualified to do.
0: All good points, Jonathan, anything to add to that? Yeah. You just have to empower whoever you have. You know, we're
2: in our, our, our clinic is, you know, for the safety net population of San Francisco, we don't have, quite as many resources and, you know, thinking, you know, so for example, pharmacy, social work, and case management services are all based on the primary care clinics. They're not based in the specialty care clinics. So reaching out to those folks and really, like I said, I'm going to repeat myself, but it's the empowerment of the patient, but the empowerment of the team. And I think we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but to give everyone, you know, the, the confidence that, you know, you can start the beta blocker or you can increase the dose of the ARNI. Like it's, you don't have to wait everyone can do this and should do this. Um, and that it really is a team, a team effort and, and, uh, getting in terms of like thinking about medications and things like that, that, you know, sometimes it's about finding a champion, you know, whether it's the pharmacist or the nurse, who's going to kind of help spearhead the GDMP or spearhead the, the PA process or spearhead the mental health component to it, or, you know, the medication reconciliation, but, you know, kind of figuring out who's, who, who you have available to you. And, you know, I meet with our, um, our heart failure nurse practitioners, we have two and we meet every week and discuss cases for an hour. Um, but just making sure everyone's on the same page and, and feels, you know, a sense of being part of that team.
0: That's great. Greg, any, any additional thoughts on this issue of how to empower a team or, you know, would, a, would an OMT program be very helpful in a situation like this?
1: So I think absolutely. And what we haven't highlighted as much is how much that team can play an important role in the adjustments of other therapies and helping patients understand what may be contributing to symptoms or having, knowing about spacing of medications, adjustments of their diuretics, follow up with regards to laboratories. So you have much more confidence about starting an MRA if you know that there's gonna be follow up in that patient's gonna have laboratory testing and monitoring. You have much better adherence to therapy when They're dedicated team members that are really trying to understand if the patient's having a side effect of dizziness, where is that occurring? What's prompting it and how to make adjustments? So that multidisciplinary team is really so fantastic at doing that. And that can be in person. That can be done remotely over the phone. That can be done in, you know, video visit options that can be done, you know, technology enhanced. But that's such an important component of the, the team with regards to both the initiation, the maintenance, the up titration of therapies, where you have a lot of different expertise all coming together, partnering with that patient and their caregivers to, to get these therapies uh, truly optimized.
0: Those are all great points. I I wanted to wrap up really with one last question, which is, you know, everyone here has different levels of expertise and angles in which they're seeing these patients. And, The question I would ask is, is there one particular low-hanging fruit or one particular type of intervention, whether it's starting medication X or like we talked about this team-based approach, is there something if it was on your wish list and you said, I could just flip this switch, you really think it could make some of the biggest differences across the patient population in terms of folks with heart failure and what we could actually do, like I said, to get from to get from the evidence to the practicalities of implementing the therapies. So Jonathan, maybe I'll start with you. If you have a one thing you'd like to see happen or one thing you think could make a big difference in terms of what people are doing day to day. Oh gosh, oh man. I
2: ask patients this question all the time. Like, you know, they have different things going on. Like if I had a magic wand, I could fix yeah. one health problem. Like what would it be first? Which is always kind of an insightful kind of window into what they're thinking and how they're feeling. Oh, gosh. One thing, I mean, the things that I'm just going to rattle out, a few that come to mind off the top of my head between like the, we're having a lot of issues with PA process and issues with Medicare in California right now. That's an issue. Bubble pack. I mean, so think about access to the, if there's someone to kind of deal with the paperwork, I think, but I, what I think really would be, I, I use a ton of bubble packs. I joke I'd probably keep the bubble pack pharmacies in San Francisco single handedly in business. But I think if there's a way, and we're working on this, um, just to get the dissemination out there in an unobtrusive way so hey you're seeing a heart failure patient you know we don't want to give you 19 best practice alerts that you know drain you but but what is a, a good like if there's an easy way just to remind everyone hey this person has heart failure with whatever ejection fraction and they should be on these medicines just consider it talk about it maybe start it But a a way to disseminate these guidelines, disseminate the team-based approach, disseminate the education, I think if there was just a really, because I mean, it's all published. I mean, that's a nice thing about social media is you can kind of be in one spot and all the journals kind of funnel into the same place. But if there's a good way for the non-heart failure provider, like Ted was saying, the primary care provider, an easy, unobtrusive way just to remind them that, it's okay to start this, like, or at least think about it or at least talk about it. Cause the more they do that and the more comfort they have with it, the more likely they are to make a change. And you got to use every touch point, every touch point that a heart failure patient sees you is an, a, an opportunity to make something better. Um, but how do you empower every provider across the spectrum of care that they're going to be seeing um, the knowledge and the comfort to do that? I think if I could do that, make everyone feel a little more comfortable with this. Being put on the spot, I think that's where I would start. Ted, Ted, do you have any
0: thoughts?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would piggyback off of that too, because I feel like you know, again, we we have a very, we have a, a different perspective than a lot of people in the sense that we're seeing these people once they're quite advanced, and you know, you have missed all of that time for GDMT initiation and titration, where you're just you know, kicking yourself, ask you know, wondering what could have gone, you know, what could we have done different or done you know, for that patient to catch this in a, in, in a different setting from an education standpoint or an outreach standpoint. But I think access would still be my big thing. I mean, it's just, that's really the rate limiting step for a lot of this stuff still. And it's, uh, I know we talked about it a little bit already, and it, dif- it differs depending on the state, Medicaid, Medicare, using co-pay cards. You can't have certain sorts of insurances or government, you know, there's just all these hoops and ladders you have to go through, uh, to, to get someone on medication that, you know, keeps them out of the hospital, makes them feel better and keeps them alive longer. And it just, you know, it, it seems like the system is set up to, to just kind of encourage you to give up at some, at, at certain points. Um, which may be by design, but that's a, a discussion for a different day, I suppose. Um, but you know, I think access is a big issue. I like the part about bubble packs even that Jonathan brought up too, because you have to think about every time you're switching meds or you're changing doses, a lot of times you get issues with pharmacies that can't fill. It's too soon to fill. You got to switch the bubble packs around. It takes 48 hours or we need five days heads up to to switch their bubble pack around every time you switch a dose because everything else is thrown in there too. So there's so many things that can go kind of awry with these patients on the outpatient setting that it's it's kind of almost just uh, scary to think about. But for me, it, it all goes back to if we can't even give them the medications and it's You know, I think the first part is obviously people need to know to use them. Um, But then if they're if they're not available to the patient, they're not really any good to them. So
0: these are good points. Greg, do you want to finish this off? Uh, If you could wave a wand or low hanging fruit, what are your thoughts?
1: From my perspective, that low-hanging fruit is really changing the paradigm that has often been focused on initiating one or two medications and up titrating them and then waiting to see. But if we could change that paradigm at time of diagnosis, every hospitalization, every outpatient visit to try and get the four foundational therapies started at low dose as the top priority and then after that has successfully been done, then focus on some up titration selectively. We would be in far greater gains. You know, comprehensive treatments can extend median survival by six or more years compared to just, you know, being on two drugs. Um, we can really make such an incredible difference for these patients, uh, get them on the right foot to where their EFs improving, and then we'll be talking to them about, you know, is there any medications that we can stop or do I need to be on these indefinitely because my heart failure has improved so much, my EF is now normal. So that early treatment and that real focus on getting all four uh, foundational therapies on board and then think about you know further up titration management of comorbidities that if we could shift that paradigm for the patients for all the clinicians involved in care we could get remarkable numbers of life saved from our existing therapies
0: here here uh, I couldn't agree more uh, I want to thank you all three for joining us today this was a wonderful session very insightful to hear all of your perspectives so thank you again for joining. For more information on advances, late-breaking news in the field of heart failure, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. HFSA is on Twitter, hfsa.org slash heart I think all three of our guests on Twitter, please follow them. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us and have a wonderful day.